The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you have experienced narcissistic abuse, you are in the right place. Our mission is to help you understand the abuse you have experienced, support you through your healing journey, and to help you develop healthy relationships. I'm your host, Juliana Aiken, and in today's episode, I'm interviewing Carrie Ann Cleveland. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she provides therapy for people with a range of issues, including chronic and or complex trauma, narcissistic abuse, high conflict divorce and custody issues, post-separation abuse, intimacy and relationship issues, and much more. In today's episode, Carrie and Cleveland will share five different strategies that you can use to develop positive core beliefs after experiencing narcissistic abuse. Let's get started. Uh, the first one that popped up into my mind was EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, which is a very long, complex title for something that is actually very quick and easy to do. Um, normally EMDR is done with a therapist, either in their office or virtually, but there's elements of EMDR that you can do, uh, at any point, you know, at home by yourself while you're driving at work. Um, so EMDR basically works by taking a trauma that you might've experienced and then digging down in the trauma to find out what is the core negative belief that got created as a result of the trauma because the trauma in itself is obviously terrific or horrific, um, but it's the story we make up about ourselves as a result of the trauma that really we carry with us and that we act on that belief throughout our lives. And we might even not be, we might not even notice that we're acting on that belief. It just sort of comes up subconsciously and we feel triggered. We feel angry. We feel scared. We feel sad because something in our environment triggered that old core belief that originally developed as part of a trauma. So if you go in to see a therapist and they do some EMDR therapy on you, the first thing will make a list of all the different traumas you want to work on, but it's really not a trauma treatment. It's a belief treatment because the next question we're going to ask you is what is the story that you made up as a result of the trauma? And then you'd go through the process with your therapist of identifying where that trauma pops up. We'd look at maybe the first time or the oldest memory you have of that belief coming up. Then we'd look at maybe the worst time or the biggest time that belief came up. And then we'll look at the most recent time that belief came up. And then we'll kind of think of an image or an experience that represents the worst part of the trauma. We'll check in with what emotions come up when you're reliving that experience as if it happened today. And then we'll look at what the body feels because trauma is stored in the body. And then what we'll do is we'll start reprocessing that trauma through eye movement desensitization. So normally you'd have a light bar, or if you're doing it virtually, a little yellow dot that would travel back and forth across the computer screen. And the client would follow that with their eyes and just sort of let their minds free associate. And you check in with the therapist every minute or so to talk about what's coming up. And through this process, what's actually happening kind of behind the scenes is that whatever that belief is, that maybe I'm not good enough or I should have known better or I, there's something wrong with me or it's all my fault, these negative beliefs that we all carry, 
is taken out of the amygdala, where they're actually stored, and transferred into the prefrontal cortex. And what's important about that is that the amygdala is that fight or flight part of the brain, the always reactive part of the brain. Um, and it's always looking out for danger. But the amygdala doesn't have chronology. So it can't really differentiate that something happened a long time ago versus I'm re-experiencing that now. It's just all perceived as now, bad, horrible, run, save yourself. So let's say, for example, um, my parents had an awful fight when I was seven years old at the dinner table and we were eating spaghetti and there was a certain song playing on the radio in the background. And this fight was extremely traumatic for me. You know, parents were screaming and throwing plates and it was very scary and I felt unsafe. And so now I have this belief that I am not safe if, if I hear loud voices, for example. Well, all of that data is gonna get stored in the amygdala together because the amygdala can't sort out my parents yelling, that was the unsafe part versus the spaghetti dinner we were having and versus the song that was playing. It doesn't know what part was unsafe, just that this whole experience felt unsafe. So maybe 15, 20 years down the line, that same song comes up at the grocery store and I have a full-blown panic attack because my amygdala is telling me it's happening again, it's happening now, you need to go protect yourself. So part of EMDR is taking all the associated memories that went into that, that one terrible experience and moving it into the prefrontal cortex, which does have chronology. And that part of the brain, if it hears the same song or smells that same Italian food that was cooking, can process that this isn't happening now and you are safe. Yes, this horrible thing happened a long time ago, but it's not happening now. The other part about the amygdala is it really doesn't understand magnitude. So it can't really differentiate between I just hit my hand with a hammer or there's a bear chasing me in the woods and I'm about to die. It's just all bad and you should have the same flooding of feelings whenever the bad thing happens. So the EMDR will help take that out of the amygdala, put it in the prefrontal cortex where you now have chronology and you have magnitude and you don't have to be so reactive. And all the little trigger associations that came with the bad thing that originally happened are, are no longer associated with it because your brain can parse out what was the bad part versus what was just auxiliary. So the reason I'm bringing this up now, as far as instilling core positive beliefs, I know I just spoke a lot about the core negative beliefs, is that it works the same way when you're taking trauma out of the amygdala as when you're trying to put the positive belief or positive mood state into the amygdala. And this is the part that people can do at home while they're driving, at work, wherever they are. So let's say, for example, uh, your boss praises you that you've done a really good job on something. Well, if you happen to have a core negative belief that I'm a failure or I'm not good enough, it would be really easy to brush off this positive feedback you just got. But instead, if you use this kind of at-home version of EMDR, you can take that positive feedback, pair it with the belief I am good enough, or something similar and bring that into your own amygdala so that you then can sort of negate the negative belief. And the more you do that, the more frequently and more intensely you do that, you're actually growing the positive belief so that the negative one has to shrink, if that makes sense. Mm, okay, so you take that, but how do you then like actually do it? Like, So this uh, is the fun part. 
yeah like yeah. using that example that you just had like how do you put it in your amygdala <laughs> yeah it's actually very simple so let's say for example my boss just said wow you did such a great job on this you were so devoted you did it you know you were dedicated the end product is wonderful you were a team player i'm really proud of you you're an asset to this company instead of me smiling and saying thanks yeah but then sort of brushing it off later is you know he's just having a good day he didn't really need it what i would do is i would focus on how that felt and i'd really get granular about it right i would maybe close my eyes for a few seconds if i was in a safe place to do that and i would just start noticing from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet where do i feel this and how does it feel so i might notice Mm, I feel my cheeks have tension right here because I'm smiling. And I notice that I have like a kind of a light fluttery feeling right here in my chest. And I notice that my stomach is sort of like butterflies in the stomach feeling. So I'm noticing all the physical sensations of receiving that positive feedback. And then I might think to myself, wow, I really did do a good job and, and kind of go step by step about all the different things I did that made me get this compliment and really making it true for myself by finding data that supports my boss's beliefs so that I can't just brush it off and say he was having a good day, right? I really put in the long hours. I went above and beyond by calling all these um, collaterals to make to make this project finish on time and finish above expectation. So really build that up in my mind to validate the truth of my boss's statement and make it true for myself. And once I have it true for myself and I'm feeling it all in my body everywhere, noticing how good it feels to have that positive belief of I am good enough, be my truth, then what I'm going to do is something called the butterfly hug. And so what I would do is I would cross my hands, I have one hand on each shoulder, and I'd take a breath and I'd let it out. And I'd keep that positive belief of I am good enough in my head, noticing all the body sensations. And I'd very slowly tap my left shoulder as I breathe in and tap my right shoulder as I breathe out. And I would just do this for maybe 15, 30 seconds. And that is the slow bilateral stimulation that your brain needs to send the message to your amygdala that I am good enough. And this is what it feels like to be good enough. And this is how I know that I'm good enough. So you're grounding all that information into the amygdala, which then rewires your neural pathways and amplifies that core positive belief. Now, if you're driving, or if it would be kind of weird at work to have your hands on your shoulders, slowly tapping them, any sort of bilateral stimulation will work. So maybe you have your hands on your knees under the desk and you're doing the slow taps on your left knee and your right knee that match your slow breathing. And just for 15, 30 seconds, it doesn't take long. Or maybe even if you're walking, because walking is a bilateral stimulation with the left, right, left, right of your feet. So there's lots of different ways you can do this that won't be fully conspicuous at work and will be safe to do while you're driving and that really amplify that core positive belief. And the more you can catch yourself in this positive mood state or having a positive belief about yourself and take those 15 to 30 seconds to ground it into your amygdala with the butterfly hug or with the bilateral tapping on your knees, the more that your brain will naturally divert to that positive belief. Okay. Thank you. That's interesting. I have a few questions. Like one is that, do you need to do this like immediately? 
it's not going to be bad if you do it later, but it's probably most effective if you do it immediately or shortly thereafter the experience because you want it to be as alive and big and real as possible. And sometimes after you get the praise at 10 a.m. in the morning from your boss, but then four or five other kind of negative things happen throughout the day, by the time you get home and remember to to do the process, it's not going to feel as alive. Mm, yeah. And then another question, um, why, why is it bilateral? Like, wh why that type of movement? Yeah, like, why bilateral? Yeah. Why not like any, you know, other movement? Why is it? Is like, what's the reason why it has to be bilateral? Yeah, so EMDR was sort of discovered in the 1980s by this researcher in Los Angeles. Her name was Francine Shapiro. And she sort of stumbled upon this by accident as she was going through a walk in the park one day where the trees were sort of evenly spaced one side across the, the lane from the other. And she had a trauma response to a belief and her eyes were just sort of naturally looking from tree to tree as she walked. And by the time she got done, she realized when she checked back in with that original original stimulus that the trauma response wasn't there anymore. So then she did what researchers do and she did a bunch of experiments to figure out how this worked. And what she eventually figured out is since we have two hemispheres of the brain, the right and the left, and certain parts of the brain are on the right side and certain parts are on the left side, that when you can do the bilateral stimulation, whether it's with your eyes or with the butterfly hug, you're stimulating the left side and then the right side of your brain alternately, which is the process that will transfer data, experiences, emotions, beliefs, feelings, these sort of things from one hemisphere to the other. So with the amygdala being on one side of the hemisphere and the prefrontal cortex being on the other, you're transferring that data so that you now get the chronology and the magnitude so that you don't get as triggered. Oh, okay. Thank you. That's interesting. Yeah. And another thing, like what I noticed that, like I haven't ever like thought about core beliefs from the point of view that they are that linked to our, let's say, trauma responses, like, and how they are linked to our triggers. That, like, yeah, I never like thought about that. Yeah, that often, you know, the trigger could be like our negative core belief that you know, we are in a situation and then something happens and the negative core belief surfaces and then we get triggered like even more or is, was that the link or did I got it wrong? Or can you just talk more about the link? Yeah, yeah, no, you nailed it. So, I mean, if you think about it conceptually, right? Children don't come out of the womb feeling like they're not good enough or there's something wrong with them or it's all their fault, right? We develop these beliefs over time through our experiences. Kind of sadly, we get most of our core beliefs before the age of about seven. Um, so we're out there in the world as, you know, little one, two, three, four, five-year-olds learning what we learn. And we do what all humans do. We try to make meaning of the experiences we're having. Our brains are just meaning-making machines. So when you're two, three, four, five, six, seven years old, you don't have the life experience to make the correct interpretation of the events that are happening around you. So often we'll wind up thinking, well, mommy yelled at me or daddy yelled at me. I must be bad or it's all my fault or some child at school doesn't want to be my best friend. I must not be good enough instead of having the awareness that we do, you know, in our 20s, 30s, 40s and so on to see the bigger picture. So we then operate for the rest of our lives on these beliefs that we made when we were two, three, four, five, six, seven years old. 
where we didn't have the right data to make the right interpretation. Mm, yeah, thank you. Then I was also thinking you gave the one example where you are at work and someone compliment the boss compliments you and then you get this feeling and then you should do it. What if is there like, how can I, you know, start instilling these positive core beliefs into myself when there is no incident like that? Like, let's say, could I just wake up one day, like one morning and be like, okay, I want to do this practice, but nothing has happened yet. You know, I haven't been interacting with someone who would, you know, praise me or I haven't done anything that, you know, I haven't yeah. finished a project yeah. that would make me feel good or anything like, or, yeah, can you do it in a way that no incident is happening prior? And can you talk more about how then if, I don't know, did you understand my question? I did. Yeah. It's an yeah. excellent question. Thank you. Yeah. So most people need external validation of some sort in order to kind of trigger that positive mood state or the positive response. We generally have a lot of negative self-talk going on in our heads, and we generally only focus on the negative things that happen around us and our negative interpretations of those things. But if you wanted to try to do this practice on your own without needing an external response, you absolutely can do that. It might be a little bit difficult at first, but I think you can certainly grow that skill with practice. And it might just look like this. You wake up in the morning, as you pointed out, and you want to put yourself in a good mood and get yourself aligned with your core beliefs. So you can just float back over your own memory bank and really try to get um, tuned into the things that you are proud of, the things you have done well, the things that make you a, a wonderful, unique, lovely human, right? And really get tuned into um, the parts of you that are special and that you appreciate, the things that you love about yourself, the things that you're best at. And if you can focus on those memories, those feelings, those beliefs, then you can absolutely do the process of magnifying it, noticing where you feel it in your body, notice the data that supports this belief, and then doing the butterfly hug or the, the tapping on your knees or whatever feels most comfortable for you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that was good. I was also thinking when you talked about how you guys do this with clients in a therapeutic setting, that... Uh, you talk about like, okay, what was the earliest, you know, uh, negative core belief about this? What it was like about whatever topic or the trauma? Uh, yeah. What is the worst? And then what is the most recent? Like what came to my mind was like, could I, for example, think uh, alone uh, within myself? Like, okay, uh, I, I, I went through narcissistic abuse or you know, something and there is this core neg negative core belief that I'm not enough. And let me write down, okay, what is the earliest memory that I have about this core belief? What is the worst and what is the recent? And how would I then apply this butterfly hug or other bilateral movement? Or is it even, should I even do it this way like, that I think earliest, worst, recent? Or yeah, what are your thoughts about this? I would not recommend that. So there's two parts to EMDR. There's the EMDR where you're trying to take the trauma and all the associated memories of the trauma out of the amygdala. And there's this EMDR, the one I explained, where you're trying to instill the positive beliefs and the move states into the amygdala. The one where you're bringing the positive belief into the amygdala, totally safe to do at home. The one where you're taking the trauma out, I would not recommend. <laughs> Uh, that is not an, an at-home or alone experience. The, the reason being is that 
as I stated before, we've got this event that triggered a belief and those are in your amygdala. And there's all sorts of things associated with that that we're probably not even consciously aware of. You know, the smell, the sight, the, sight, the sound, whatever else was going around uh, you at that time. And then anything sort of even remotely related to those feelings or thoughts or beliefs or sensory experiences that are stored in the amygdala near it will come up when you're doing the EMDR where you're processing the trauma. So you might have a lot of things come up that you don't even remember, things you haven't thought about in years. And these can be very big, very scary feelings and experiences and trauma memories that I would not process at home alone by myself. The first step with EMDR when when you're going to do the trauma part, taking the trauma out, is resourcing. And that means really getting clear on what you can do to keep yourself safe if and when one of these flooding trauma memories comes up either in session or out of session after you're you're doing the reprocessing part. And I don't think that it would be a great idea to try to do that at home. This is something that usually takes many months in in EMDR with a, with a therapist. Um, I would really need to make sure that the person is safe to take care of themselves for whatever experiences they might have in the reprocessing part. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's good to know. And I was also thinking, so when you talked about those resources part, uh, what came to my mind is that a person really needs like solid foundation of coping skills and self-soothing. Is that what those resources are or some like support system around them? So when, if like you can't heal trauma without the pain kind of, there are going to be those triggering moments and those yeah. memories. Like, so are you talking about when you mentioned the resources that you need to have a solid foundation of coping skills uh, in place before, you know, even in therapy, doing this, removing the trauma part with EMDR? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if I was to be performing EMDR on somebody to remove the trauma and the negative core belief, we would spend a lot of time doing the resourcing. And that might look like um, having some, some actual support as far as like friends and family or partner that knows you're going through EMDR that can really be there to support you if you feel flooded after a session. Um, there might be some mindfulness things or definitely be some mindfulness things. Um, I like to include some creative creative resources, you know, whether that's gardening or whatever. I like to include physical resources. So taking a hot bath or a cold shower or doing yoga, whatever it is that works for you. Um, and then I'd actually need to see evidence before starting the EMDR that the client actually will use these resources. Because while we can talk about them all day, <laughs> when we're actually triggered, our go-to is usually going to be the negative coping response. And that might be drugs or alcohol. It might be anger. It might be, you know, uh, gambling or reckless sex or driving too fast. There's a lot of things we do as humans that are really not um, the best for us, obviously but that are easy and quick fixes when we're feeling a certain type of way. And, and I'm not going to do EMDR on somebody who I know is just going to go numb out with it, with something that's not beneficial to their health. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Then one more question about this EMDR yeah. part. Uh, I was thinking you said that, mm, you know, safe at home is when you instill this positive um, 
core beliefs uh, with the butterfly hugs or any other bilateral movement. But then the removing of that trauma with this EMDR, do not do it at home alone, but with a professional. Immediately what I thought, I was like, well, is it then going to be effective if I'm not taking away those negative ones? Like, is it like, is it still going to always be there, the trauma, if I'm just keep instilling positive one, because that's what I can do at home, but I wouldn't, but, but then following your recommendation, like, don't do it, don't try to take the trauma away with EMDR alone at home. So is it, is it then effective or is it, what are your thoughts? Like, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, obviously the gold standard would be to be reprocessing the trauma through EMDR with a therapist, either online or, or in person. Um, but not everybody can afford that, right? It's therapy is not inexpensive. So if you can't afford it, or it's just not logistically possible, maybe there's not an EMDR therapist that you can get connected to through your insurance or or locally, um, then I would still absolutely use the butterfly hug technique to instill the core positive belief. You're certainly not damaging yourself by doing that. You're only increasing your positive mood state and your core beliefs. And I don't know the accuracy of the statement. This is just my personal hypothesis, but I would think that the more you can grow those positive beliefs within you and truly feel them, the less that the negative beliefs are going to be have, have voice or be active, if that makes sense. So while the trauma is still there, it feels to me like you can sort of shrink it by instilling more and more positive beliefs and truly living that truth of the positive belief. It's sort of like, You've got this, if you imagine trauma as like a bathtub full of water, right? And you want to drain it out. Um, the quickest way would be to take the plug out, right? And get all that trauma gone. And that would be having EMDR with a therapist in their office. But if you that's not an option, you could always turn on the shower and that's going to flood the bathtub so much that that trauma is going to come out the side while this pod, let's say the shower is the positive core beliefs that you're putting into the bathtub. At some point, the trauma is coming out while the positive belief is coming in and the water is going to kind of stabilize to a lower trauma level, if that makes sense. Yeah, that was a great, great way to, you know, <laughs> illustrate. I can see that, you know, in my mind. Yeah. So. Yeah, thank you. So the first strategy when we are trying to uh, develop positive core beliefs is EMDR. So can you just summarize why this works when we are trying to uh, develop positive core beliefs? Yeah, well, I would say like the 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 Twitter version answer of that, if I'm trying to keep it to 120 characters <laughs> or less, would be that you're rewiring your neural pathways. You're increasing the part of your amygdala that quickly calls upon a positive core belief to be the reactive point versus the negative core belief. So you're retraining your brain to react in a more positive manner. Thank you. That was great. <laughs> so yeah, so this this was really great. So the first strategy in you know developing positive core beliefs, EMDR at home, and then uh, I mean you gave Kate gave great examples and practices how to do it at home. And of course, if at all possible, please do it with a professional. Then what what would be a, another strategy when we are trying to develop positive core beliefs after experiencing narcissistic abuse? So this is a quick and easy one, and I'll just call it, I know my truth. So 
I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of Tina Swithin from One Mom's Battle. She's very vocal in the narcissism and narcissistic abuse arena. Um, and this is something I got out of one of her earlier books. And it basically just boils down to this. If you have been in a narcissistic relationship with anyone for any amount of time, you've probably experienced a lot of gaslighting. And it's impossible, I feel, to have a very strong foundation of core positive beliefs when you're not even sure anymore who you are, what's true about you, what is good about you, what is valuable about you. And so Tina had written in her book, which I'm sort of parroting here, that it you just get down to basics. And that literally means taking out a pen and paper or going into the notes section of your phone and you start keeping a running list of what is true about you. What is your truth about yourself? And it could be something as easy as like, I like fried eggs better than I like scrambled eggs, right? But also the goal is to work up to developing more, I guess I want to say bigger truths. So for example, reflecting on certain situations where you might've been gaslit or manipulated or coerced into something. What often happens when we're manipulated or coerced into things, which is part and parcel with narcissistic abuse, is that um, something called cognitive dissonance happens, which means if your actions and your reality or your actions and your beliefs aren't in alignment, one has to change. And when you're stuck in a narcissistic abusive situation and you can't get out of it in this moment, so you're doing and saying and experiencing things that aren't in alignment with your beliefs, the only thing you control is change your beliefs, right? Change your truth. But that's not our truth. And so when we've been conditioned to believe certain things from these narcissistic abusive relationships, once you get out of them or once you're recovering from them, it's really important to get back to, well, what is my truth? What is my truth? Not the truth that I had to make up to tolerate this situation. And so that comes with writing it down, really getting clear about what is your truth. You might even start, if it's available to you, asking some trusted friends and family, what is true about me? You know, what are my good qualities that you see? And sometimes it's easier to hear it from another person. It might not be easy to believe it initially, but you really get solid in checking in with yourself moment to moment of what is my truth. So for example, it might look like a friend is asking you to pick them up from the airport this Saturday at 4 a.m. or what is some, some ungodly hour, right? And you don't really want to do it, but you've been conditioned through this narcissistic abusive relationship or other life experiences to say yes to everything, to be accommodating to everything, to please others. You want to avoid the conflict at all costs. You really want to be liked and praised, right? So if you're in this process of developing I Know My Truth, it would be before you make any commitment, before you make any decision, give yourself a 15 to 30 second pause to check in and say, do I really want to do this? If the answer is no, then say no, right? And so really getting clear about not just I know my truth, but then acting that truth. Mm, okay, yeah, thank you. Um, and so to... Because I myself, when I've been doing exercises like this, like you said, it's really hard to believe at work at first. Like even if you ask your friends or even if you're just doing it yourself, it might be hard to believe. 
any tips kind of how to just push through that and just keep going? Yeah, I do. One of them is actually going to lead into my next um, piece of advice on how to develop the core beliefs, and that is mindfulness and gratitude. Um, I feel like the more that we can drop in and find that knowing within us, I don't know if any of your listeners know of Glennon Doyle, but she's a favorite of mine. And in her newest book, um, Untamed, she talks a lot about the knowing and just taking a few minutes in silence or mindfulness to really drop in and get in touch with your knowingness inside. Just like I said before that, you know, infants don't come out of the womb feeling any of these negative beliefs about themselves. They're not good enough and so on. We all come out of the womb really knowing our truth. It's just that over time through experiences, we start to doubt it. So if you're writing down on your your list of I know my truth items that um, I am patient, for example, but you've been told through your narcissist that you're not, that you're selfish, that you're rude, that you're demanding, writing on that list, I am patient, might not feel real true. But if you can drop into yourself and use some mindfulness techniques, which we'll go over in a minute, I personally can actually feel a resonation in my body when I'm saying or sort of doing something that is my truth. And to me, it feels like a kind of a shakiness that I vision from like my esophagus almost down to my belly button. And that's my body really telling me that this is true. This is this is real. This is valid. And that just comes from a mindfulness practice, which we'll get into more. Um, but outside of the mindfulness piece, um, I always, am, I like data. I'm, I'm partly a researcher, right? So if I am wanting to write down, I am patient and I, there's the resistance to that for maybe from the narcissistic abuse. Well, then I'm going to go back to my, my mental library and look for data that really validates the truth that I am patient. And I'd go back as far as I can. You know, when I was five years old, my mom put a plate of freshly baked cookies and they smelled amazing and they were right in front of me but she said I couldn't have one for 30 minutes and I waited those 30 minutes because I was patient right and I'd look for any little piece of data it doesn't matter how small that validates that truth Mm, yeah thank you would your answer be different if you have someone who is in a narcissistic family system grown up and it feels like I really don't know my truth because I don't know myself because I never did really did develop the way I wanted compared to someone in a romantic relationship uh, in adulthood or where they feel like oh my core beliefs old ones were kind of damaged but they were there but they were like just destroyed by the and yeah did you get it (laughs) yeah I got this great question there's a lot of layers to that one um the first thing that pops into my head is sort of yes and no. <laughs> so yeah, it would be, I think, very difficult for somebody who was raised with the narcissist to have had as as many experiences to develop their own core beliefs and experiences that validate those beliefs as it would somebody who, let's say, had to secure an attachment with their parents and had a lot of positive childhood experiences who then later gets into the relationship with a narcissist in adulthood. Um, That being said, I think it just really depends on the person. You know, I've worked with a lot of clients as a therapist, some of whom their narcissist was their mother or father, for example, or a sibling. So they were raised in that household. And yet they're actually very clear on who they are. Sometimes 
for um, it's easier to know what we don't want than what we do, if that makes sense. And so sometimes being raised in a household like that, you get very clear about who you are and what's important to you in with the background of the narcissist, like showing you what you don't want and who you who you are not, um, who you don't want to be. So I've had, you know, clients who have the narcissist in their family who are are very good about knowing their truth. And I've also had clients who only came into narcissistic relationships later in life um, who are just totally thrown for a loop. They, they can't tell up, down, left, right anymore. They don't know who they are at all. And I think that's because it's like their mind is blown. They never knew what narcissism was or that it was out there or how it felt to be in that kind of a relationship. And it's almost like, oh my God, I've been living with aliens my whole life. Like I didn't know these people were out there. You know what I mean? So it's like a whole a paradigm shift. Mm, okay. I resonate with that, that sometimes when you grew up in a narcissistic family system, you actually might know very well your truth. So the first strategy in developing positive core beliefs, we talked about the EMDR. And the second one here, we have been talking about the, I, the like, I know my truth. And can you again, in the Twitter style, summarize <laughs> why why it works, this strategy number two, that I know my truth when we are trying to develop positive core beliefs? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say that um, by cultivating a list of things that are true about ourselves, that you actually know with certainty, that you have a more solid foundation to either discover or rediscover your positive core beliefs. When you don't have a little voice in your ear telling you all these negative things about yourself, which are likely not even true, then we can really get in touch with what is true. You know, that truth of who we are when we came out of the womb. Thank you. Um, yeah, so you already touched on this very briefly that the strategy number three when we are trying to develop positive core beliefs would be mindfulness and gratitude but can you talk more in detail about this yeah so i won't get into all the data i'm, I'm everybody out there can google the ted talks but there's just endless amounts of data that shows that mindfulness and gratitude truly rewires our neural pathways truly rewires our, or, or it magnifies our core positive beliefs. It literally changes the structure of the brain and it can be seen on MRIs. Um, I personally struggle with mindfulness. It's something that I don't necessarily enjoy. I always feel like I'm not doing it right or I'm not doing it good enough. Um, you know, we, they call it the monkey brain where you're getting distracted every couple seconds by thoughts. And then you judge yourself for having these thoughts because you're not doing the mindfulness thing you're supposed to be doing. And then it's all just feels like it's getting worse. So I really relate to people who say, oh, I can't do it or I don't like doing it. And so this is my sort of response to that because I'm in that camp as well, right? That it's easier than you think. You don't have to be sitting in lotus position with your hands, you know, touching your your thumbs, touching your middle fingers, oming for hours or chanting for hours. That's not really what mindfulness is. It's absolutely something quick and easy that you can incorporate into your everyday life. And I'll go through some strategies on how to do that. If you'd like me to do that now, I can. I don't know if I fully answered your question. Uh, yeah, yeah. So part of this question is like how to implement this into our daily lives. So now I'm really interested in hearing, you know, the practical side of things when it comes to mindfulness yeah, yeah. and gratitude. 
Yeah. So here's my little two bits about how to do mindfulness if you hate mindfulness. <laughs> so the first one is called the furthest sound, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, you can do this anytime, anywhere. You just get quiet and you start listening for what you can hear. And so, for example, like right now, I'm hearing a little ringing in my ear. Um, and then I'd say, okay, what can I hear that's furthest than that? And right now I can hear somebody rustling around in the bathroom but near where I'm sitting. And then maybe I'd say to myself, well, what can I hear that's furthest than that? I hear some car noise outside. And what can I hear that's furthest than that? I hear a bird in the tree. And furthest than that, I hear an airplane. And you just keep going with that. And the trick to this one is that while you're searching for that sound, you're not having all the thoughts about your day and what you have to do. You're literally just being present. And as you're searching for a further and further song, there's a sound, there's usually longer and longer periods of that silence. So you're sort of tricking yourself into being in silence and being free of thought. One of the other ones I really like is like, I call it stimulus response. So that might be for people like me who try to like still their mind and, and have no thought and be quiet. And of course, the second I tell myself to have no thoughts, a hundred thousand thoughts crowd into my brain. And I'm just noticing every little thing around me. Like I'm itchy and there's a sound and I'm hot and whatever. So I use the stimulants to have the response of silence. And even if that's just for one nanosecond in my brain, um, or you can, if you don't want to do the silence part, you can even just use like a mantra, like I'm good enough, or I choose joy or whatever it wants to be. So then I'm sitting here and I'm noticing that I'm itchy, mantra, I choose joy. I'm noticing that I'm uh, feeling frustrated, I choose joy. So you use whatever the stimulus is in your environment to prompt the response, whether that's silence or a mantra or, or something like that. So I was going to talk about noticing for my, my third piece of um, mindfulness mm -hmm. and noticing is very much like what I already explained with the EMDR and the butterfly hug. So it's literally just tuning in and noticing what's happening. Um, this one might show up as like, you can do this one while you're eating, for example. So let's say um, I'm going to eat a raisin. Normally just pop it in your mouth, chew it for like two seconds, swallow it, you're done, you grab another raisin. But with noticing, I would I would take time to notice every process of this. I'm going to notice my hand picking up the raisin. I'm going to notice how the raisin feels in my hand. It's pretty light, so it probably doesn't feel like much, but I'll try to tune into whatever it does feel like. When I put it in my mouth, I'm going to notice how it feels passing my lips and sitting on my tongue. I'm going to not just chew it and swallow it in two seconds. I'm going to sort of savor it and notice the texture of the wrinkly skin of the raisin on my tongue. I'm going to notice a little bit of the sweetness that comes up. I'm going to notice the thickness of the skin on the outside of the raisin versus the kind of more moist, pulpy center. I'm going to notice every little part of eating this raisin. I'm going to be absolutely present to the experience of eating it. And I'm going to let it take, you know, a minute maybe to eat the one raisin, to really be present to that. And it sounds ridiculous, but you're being fully present and mindful in that one moment, right? You're not thinking other thoughts. You're not having any anxiety or worries. You're being absolutely present to this one experience. And you can do it with a thousand different things, right? You can try to be fully present and notice how it feels to get dressed in the morning and to put your clothes on. 
noticing the temperature of the room when you take off your shirt, noticing the softness of the fabric when you put on your clean shirt, just whatever it is, being fully present to the experience for just three to five minutes a day of whatever it is you're doing already in your daily routine is mindfulness. Mm, yeah, and that's why it's like, it's not that you have to take additional you know, time aside almost. You just have to focus on whatever you are already doing and doing it mindfully. And mm -hmm. uh, there really isn't, you know, excuses. I don't have time for this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that's a great one. Uh, yeah. So these were like three practical ways to do mindfulness. You also said gratitude. Do you have something separate for that or are they somehow intertwined or, yeah? Yeah, well, I mean, you can absolutely incorporate gratitude into any mindfulness practice and vice versa. Um, but I do have three quick ones I can share with you as well about gratitude. I yeah. personally feel that gratitude is the quickest way to shift yourself out of a negative mood state, which goes hand in hand with instilling the core positive beliefs and that core positive mood state. Um, I know when I'm feeling like angry or scared or sad, if I start being really grateful and finding where I have good things in my life to be, to be grateful for, that it's almost impossible to have those two mood states at once of anger and gratitude, right? <laughs> to me, they're a little bit mutually exclusive, um, which is not true for everybody. So this might not work for everybody. But um, the first one I do is called shower thoughts. And a little bit like what I was just talking about, about being mindful. If I'm taking a shower or taking a bath, which hopefully we all do pretty regularly, you can take that time to incorporate some gratitude by literally sending thanks and gratitude to every part of your body as you're washing it, as you're you know using the soap or a loofah and your shampoo and your razor and all the different things we do in the shower. Be really present to each part of your body. So it might be, you know, I'm sending love and gratitude to my feet. They help me get everywhere I need to go. They keep me on a solid foundation, right? I can use them in defense. If I'm feeling scared, I can kick somebody, right? Like <laughs> really just being present to every little part of our bodies and what we love about it. This also is really good for people who might have body image issues, as I think almost every human does. If you really can send some love and gratitude for even the parts that we're not pleased with how they look, right? <laughs> you know, it might be somebody who has um, a breast cancer scar and they're really ashamed of it or embarrassed by it. You can send some gratitude to that part of their body. Like, wow, I'm still alive, right? And, and we fought hard together. And I can be really grateful with this scar that I'm here today to have this experience of gratitude. Mm, thank you. And I like the way you, because that's essentially when you are like, okay, what I'm doing regularly in my day and one is like, you know, taking a shower, then you are pairing, you're almost, you're developing a new habit. Like you are doing something already, like in a routine way. And then you are pairing it with a gratitude practice. So it forms very powerful and, you know, healing habit actually. So yeah, thank you. That's and I love great. that you just used the word pairing because that's actually my second one that I was oh. going to bring up. <laughs> yeah. So anything that you do on a regular basis, like have a cup of coffee or, you know, brush your teeth or whatever it is that you do every day, you would pair that with the gratitude. Right. So sometimes it can be hard to remember to be grateful after the whole day's worth of experiences where maybe some things happen that weren't very pleasant. 
But if you pair um, the gratitude practice, either first thing in the morning or last thing at night or whenever it just works for you with something you're already doing, it's that trigger to go back into gratitude, which is a great way to start or end your day or just use whenever throughout the day, honestly. Um, so, you know, it might be just that, like whenever I'm pouring my coffee into my coffee cup, I'm going to think of three things that I'm grateful for today. And it's best if you can make them unique things, not just like, you know, I'm grateful for my kids. I'm grateful for my job. I'm grateful for whatever. Like, obviously those are givens, right? But like, what can you be grateful for that is specific, that is, that is unique? Try to come up with three different things every day. And they can be silly. You know, it could be, I'm grateful for elephants. I'm kind of obsessed with elephants. So like, I am really grateful for today that elephants exist in this world. You know, it could be something like that. Or it could be just be really that I'm grateful that I'm getting to sit and have this cup of coffee, you know, that I'm giving myself five minutes of the day to just be. Thank you. So did you say you had three? So what other quick tip you have? Yeah. So the the other one that I'll share, I call it the morning mirror exercise. And I actually learned about this one on a TED talk. I believe the um, the speaker's name was Shauna Shapiro. It was about mindfulness and gratitude. And um, she shared that she had, a, I think she had a lot of self-loathing going on, if I remember, feelings of worthlessness, feeling like a failure, that sort of a thing. And so she got in this practice of putting her hand on her heart every morning when she woke up and saying, I love you, Shauna. Just that. And she said it was the hardest thing in the world for her to do initially. And she actually couldn't even think those words, I love you, Shauna. Um, it was just too hard. And it took her a really long time to work up to it. And it took her even longer to actually put her hand on her heart and say it out loud just to herself in an empty room. And then eventually over time, she worked up to standing in front of the mirror and looking at herself in the eyes as she said that. <laughs> and it sounds so silly, but it really brings up a lot of emotion in a lot of people to start your day every day by saying, I love you and stating your name. And with time, eventually saying it to your own face in the mirror. But it really does increase that sense of self-worth. It increases gratitude. It changes your neural pathways. And overall, it changes your core positive beliefs. Mm, yeah. Thank you for all these tips for mindfulness and gratitude. Again, um, when we are talking about developing positive core beliefs, I want the Twitter style again. I like that a lot. So, <laughs> so if you can, again, take in both mindfulness and gratitude, why they work when we are trying to develop positive core beliefs. Yeah, well, for me personally, being in an attitude of gratitude kind of prevents me from having any other negative mood state. I can't be angry or sad or anything when I'm truly in gratitude for myself and my the things that I appreciate in the world. Um, so gratitude is a very quick way for me to shift from the negative to the positive. And when I'm in a positive mood state, I can access my core positive beliefs a lot deeper and a lot more quickly. And then mindfulness falls in the same bucket. When I'm being mindful and present, I can't be in a negative mood state. I'm in that neutral mood state. And if I've already shifted my neural pathways to naturally default to the more positive core beliefs than being in mindfulness makes them more readily accessible. 
Hey, I hope you are enjoying this episode right now. If you didn't know this already, our mission here at Unfiltered is to help people who have experienced narcissistic abuse understand the abuse they have experienced, support them through their healing journey, and to help them develop healthy relationships. We want to help as many people as possible, but the only way we can reach everyone is if you choose to share this episode. So if you have been getting value from our content, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with others. You could do this by sharing it with your online support groups, sending it to someone dealing with a narcissist, or even leaving a review. Thank you so much. Let's get back to the episode. Uh, the first strategy was EMDR. The second one was like, I know my truth. The third one was mindfulness and gratitude. So these were the three strategies in developing positive core beliefs, but we have two more. So uh, what is the fourth one? Yeah. So the fourth one is not mine, uh, although I've sort of adapted it a little bit. Um, there's this great author. Her name is Byron Katie. I think she's one of like Oprah's you know, favorite people, favorite books, that sort of a thing. And she wrote this excellent book called The Work. Um, you can Google her. She has, you know, TED Talks and all that sort of a thing. Um, and it's based, she developed kind of a four-step process that helps challenge our assumptions and stories that we make up about certain experiences, sort of similar to EMDR, but a little bit, she does a little bit different. And so I've sort of taken that and adapted it to use in my practice. And I've made it sort of a five-step process that I use to help people instill more core positive beliefs and challenge their negative ones. And so how that works is the first one is you ask yourself, is it true? So let's say, for example, that your partner, your boss, your parent, whoever is really treating you poorly, you're experiencing narcissistic abuse, and you would want to pick one element of that to focus on when you're doing the work. And so that might look like, um, I'm not good enough, just for an example, because I think that's a pretty common one. So I have this belief, some, I just had a fight with my narcissistic husband, let's say, and that belief of I'm not good enough is getting activated as a result of this fight we just had. And so the first thing I'm going to ask myself, well, is it true? Is it true I'm not good enough? My answer in that moment is probably going to be yes, because I'm really feeling not good enough, right? That just got activated. So yeah, the truth is he called me names. He criticized me. He belittled me. Um, if I haven't done uh, step number two, which is the, I know my truth part, you know, that we talked about earlier, then I don't, I don't know my truth. So I'm absolutely going to believe all these things that my husband just said that belittled me and criticized me. So is it true? My answer is right now, yes, it feels true. And it's important that we're using that word feel true because so just because something feels true doesn't mean it is true. We all have this very habit, very bad habit of believing our body's sensations as a fact. And our body is the sensations we feel in our body is just a reaction from the amygdala and the belief is up there in the amygdala, right? So if my body's saying, oh God, I feel shaky. I feel like I'm going to throw up. I, I feel small. I feel uh, all these different negative like sensory experiences. Then your brain says, well, then this belief must be true because your body's reacting like it's true. They call that bottom up processing. So the first step is checking in. Of, is it true? Well, I'm feeling all these feelings because of this fight and I don't feel like I'm good enough. So it feels true. Okay. So then our second step is going to be, well, how do you react? What happens when you believe the negative thought? Well, for me, if I'm feeling not good enough, I'm going to feel sad. I'm going to get real small. I'm going to start making mistakes. 
I'm going to, I'm not going to do anything that would put me front and center. I'm not going to draw any attention to myself. I'm not going to believe in myself. I'm not going to go get that degree at college, you know, because I don't, I don't feel that I'm good enough. I don't feel like I would, I would pass the classes. I don't feel like I deserve that kind of life. So there's some pretty major repercussions for believing this thing that I'm not good enough. It's not just affecting me in this moment. It's going to affect my whole future, right? I'm not going to go to the school I want to go to. I'm not going to go out for the job that I want to apply for. So once I've gotten clear on what feels true and how it's really negatively impacting me, how I'm reacting because a result of the belief, I'm going to ask myself for the proof. I'm going to go back to the data. Well, how do I, do I absolutely know it's true? Do I absolutely know it's true that I'm not good enough? And if so, how do I know it's true that I'm not good enough? Well, that's where the fun part comes in. That's where I'm going to start going back through my memory banks and saying, can I find even one time where I was good enough? I don't know, can I? So then I start thinking, well, uh, I was voted class president when I was in high school. I got straight A's. Um, I did really good on the track team. I have a lot of friends who love me. I've got a really close family and, and they are very supportive of me. My past boss seems to think I do a great job. You know, I, I got employee of the month last month. Like whatever it is, whatever data we have that can counteract the story we're telling ourselves about not being good enough. That's my data. That's my truth, right? So a lot of people will ask me at that point, well, I can think of just as many things to show you that I'm not good enough, right? <laughs> that's how we are as humans. Yeah, you can, but I'm looking for the exception. If we have even one piece of data that showed you were good enough one time, then that means that you can't be not good enough. You can't be not good enough if you are also sometimes good enough, right? <laughs> So all you need is one piece of data. So then the next step would be, well, who would I be without this negative belief? If I didn't think that I'm not good enough, what would that look like? For me, it would look like, well, I'd probably have more joy in my life. I'd probably be more confident. I'd probably take more risks. I'd probably take actions that so that I could live a life that matches that core positive belief of I am good enough. I'd stand up to my to the bullies, maybe if it was safe to do so. I believe in myself. Okay, so if that's what would happen, if I choose to believe that I'm good enough, that's a pretty good motivator for me to go ahead and move forward with that belief. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just as easy as, well, I'm going to choose to believe I'm good enough today. You know, that feels kind of hollow to me. But there has to be an action. And that's where the fifth step comes in. And so for me, the fifth step is, what is in my power to do? What do I choose to do now that I, I, I believe that I'm good enough or I want to believe I'm good enough? How do I reinforce that? How do I activate it? And so for me using this example, I'm going to choose to live in the truth that I am good enough, that I am worthy, that I am lovable, that I am valuable, and I'm going to take actions such as setting boundaries. That's a great one. Um, removing myself from a negative experience or a negative situation and spending time with people who validate me and who support me and who also mirror back to me that I am good enough. 
I'm going to start surrounding myself with that community as much as I possibly can so that with time, I will start to, to take that belief that I'm good enough and make that be my truth. Mm, thank you. So this was yeah. five-step process to instilling more positive core beliefs and you described very well all the different parts in this. And uh, yeah, why do you think that this five-step process really works when we are trying to develop positive core beliefs? Yeah, so with this one, it's really about getting out of the story, right? We have a narcissist in our life. They're telling us something. We have a, a fight with them. We make up a story about the fight was all my fault. I should have known better. You know, I shouldn't have said X, Y, Z to him or her. Um, but if you go through this, this process, you take yourself out of the emotional truth of it, which is where we often get stuck. And you put yourself in that data researcher part of, well, is it true? How does it feel? If it's true, how would my life look? If it's not true, how would my life look? You get to become more analytical about it. And like 99% of the time, I'd say, when we really start analyzing these situations, the story we've made up is not true. The story we made up is a result of the feelings we were having in the moment when the bad thing was happening. And then you have choice. You know, if you're gonna choose between two stories, most of us are going to choose to to pick the one that brings us the positive outcome. And that's where your power comes from is, is within the choice, right? Which is why I added that fifth step of well, what am I going to do about it? Mm. So I think this, this process really helps with the core positive beliefs because it's making you the author of, of the belief, right? You're getting to make a choice to believe it. And then you get to have your actions match the belief, match that choice. Yeah, thank you. I really like that summary. It really yeah. you know, shows shows how how this works. Um, so we have come a long way. So <laughs> the first one was EMDR. The second one was I know my truth. The third one was mindfulness and gratitude. The fourth one was this um, five step process to instill more positive core beliefs. What is the final? Well, the final one is narrative therapy. And this is something that would often be done in a therapist's office, but can absolutely be done at home alone. This isn't one that I think will be fueled with a lot of trauma that might come with like some sort of flooding response. Um, and this, they're all very similar. Everything I've shared today is very similar. Um, so this one, they call it a problem-saturated narrative. And we're, I think most people are, are probably guilty of this, right? So let's say two people get up, go through their day, come home, be with our family, go to bed. The same experiences happened to both people, exactly the same. They lived in an exactly parallel day. One person goes to bed and thinks, God, I had such an awful day today. The other person goes to bed and thinks, wow, what a great day today. It's all about our narrative, right? What meaning, what story we're going to make of it. More often than not, we tend to choose the negative interpretation. And there's actually an evolutionary basis for that, which I can get into if you'd like me to. Um, yeah, yeah if you can shortly, like, yeah, I don't know yeah. where you want to say it, but yeah, I would like to hear it. <laughs> yeah, so the evolutionary reason why humans tend to default to a more negative mindset and why um, our, our minds generally can recall bad experiences more intensely and more quickly than we can positive experiences 
is evolutionary. It's literally to keep us safe. And it kind of makes sense if you think about like, you know, caveman days, right? Um, you had to be very quick to recall what may or may not be dangerous, what species of, of foods, what animals, you know, all these sorts of things. The, the more that you could keep yourself safe by focusing on what potential dangers were all around you at all times, the more likely you are, like thanks to Darwin, you know, to go on and procreate survival of the fittest. So our brains that over time have developed to be able to recall negative experiences more intensely and more quickly than we can positive ones. Um, we don't really live in that sort of time anymore, right? I don't need to constantly be looking out for a snake that's about to bite me or a bear that's about to kill me. But our brains still work in that way in a a differently dangerous environment. I won't say we live in a safe environment. That's clearly not the case in America and many other countries. Um, but our brains are still always operating, looking for that inherent danger. It's just that the dangers are very different. Um, you know, as would apply to this po podcast, a lot of the dangers like our narcissistic abuse type dangers, but the amygdala can't separate out like the actual physical danger of death versus that, that danger of the psychological abuse or emotional abuse and that sort of a thing, it all still feels very much the same. So when you're in a narcissistic abusive relationship, you're always on high alert for where's the danger. You're walking on the proverbial eggshells. You're trying not to trigger him or her. You're trying to make yourself small and not be a target, be invisible. So that's why our brains are going to naturally default to the negative even when we're not living in caveman days, we're just living with a narcissist, right? We're still always looking out for that danger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So this was the narrative therapy. You said that there is like two people and it's all about like two people go to sleep. The other person has totally different narrative uh, at the end of the day than the other. And it's all about our narrative. So when we are trying to develop yeah. these positive core beliefs, like, can you, can you yeah, talk more about this narrative therapy approach? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, with narrative therapy, we're going to take the problem saturated narrative. So that would be the person whose identical day they went home and said, oh, it was such an awful day. And so let's say, for example, in their day, um, what they notice when they're going to bed at night is that they burnt their eggs at breakfast. So they didn't get to have any breakfast and traffic was really bad and somebody cut them off and they were 15 minutes late to work and um, somebody else got promoted for the job that they really wanted and they came home and their partner was in a terrible mood and, and kind of wasn't very affectionate and just so on and so forth, right? So that's our problem saturated narrative. Those are all the different problems. So with narrative therapy, and this is something you can do at home, you're going to sit down and write it out all out, exactly like I just said it, or exactly whatever your story is, with all the different problems listed one after another, but in like story form, not just a bullet point. You're actually going to write out, this is what happened, and you know, I got up at this time, and I burnt my eggs, and this is why I burnt my eggs, whatever your story is, you know. And then you're going to sit down and take out a separate piece of paper, and you're going to start rewriting the same story using these points I'm about to give you. So you're gonna look at your original story. The first thing you're gonna go through is look through any assumptions that you had in the first version. What are some of the assumptions I had here? Well, maybe I have this assumption that um, that driver who cut me off on the way to work was just rude, right? They're just a mean, terrible person and they're taking out their day on me. 
that's an assumption. Maybe that person is on the way to the hospital because their wife is about to have a baby. You know, it has nothing to do with you. You know, they have their own stuff going on. It's not a personal attack, right? Um, maybe the assumption here is that, well, my boss gave this other person the promotion that I wanted because that's their cousin, right? And they're just keeping it all in the family. Um, when the truth is that, well, you're late to work three days out of four. And they gave this other person the promotion because they show up on time every day and they even stay late at night sometimes and they're always willing to do extra things. So maybe that's actually a little bit on you, right? Um, then the other thing we'll look at is some expectations. So when you look at this problem-saturated narrative, there seems to be an expectation here that um, you can wake up late and there shouldn't be any traffic because you're late. Right. And so now you're mad that there's traffic when really they, that shouldn't have been your expectation. You knew that you woke up late. You knew that traffic gets worse as the morning gets later. And then yet somehow you're mad that the traffic is there. So that's an unreasonable expectation that you had set for yourself. Um, the next one would be exceptions. Um, so this one, for example, um, maybe with the promotion, you're thinking you should have gotten this promotion because you uh, always perform better than the person who did get it, right? And so then I'd look at what are the, ex uh, the exceptions here? And again, it might be, well, I am often late and I never stay over because I wanna get home to my kids. And um, he, my boss gave me this big project and I really didn't do a good job on it. You know, I totally dropped the ball and we lost that corporate account or whatever it is. So there are exceptions here that would sort of disprove my theory, but exceptions also work the opposite way. So what are some times that I did, um, did really get praise from my boss? Where are some other areas where I have done well that kind of negate this whole story I've made up that the boss is just out to get me and the boss doesn't like me and the boss likes this person better because it's their cousin. So I could look for exceptions where the boss praised me and the boss gave me more and more responsibilities and stuff like that that sort of negates the story that it's all unfair. And then the last part I would look at is alternative outcomes or alternative interpretations. And so this, you know, these are all sort of very similar. You don't actually have to do all these steps, just the ones that pertain to your narrative. But the alternative outcomes or interpretations might look something like, um, well, if I had gotten up on time, I would have been more present and paying attention and I wouldn't have burned the eggs. And if I hadn't have burned the eggs, maybe I would have left earlier. And if I had left earlier, I wouldn't have hit the traffic. And if I hadn't gotten cut off by this person in traffic, I would have showed up at a better mood at work. And if I'd showed up at a better mood at work, yada, 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 it just goes on and on like that. So, and like even to with the partner coming home and the partner's in a bad mood, maybe the outcome here is that, well, you came home in a bad mood and your partner reacted, right? Or maybe your partner legitimately did have something really bad happen that day and they're allowed to be in a bad mood. It doesn't mean that their bad mood is an attack against you, right? There's all sorts of different ways that this day could have played out differently and, and really focusing on what was your piece and what was a story you made up about what happened to you and how could it have changed differently so that we can be more accountable in the future or make different decisions in the future? Mm, yeah, thank you. This seems very effective. 
can you clarify all this, the link with like developing positive core beliefs? Like why doing this type of, you know, work helps us to develop positive core beliefs? Yeah. So this also links to a lot of the other ones I've said today in that when we have this problem saturated narrative and you're constantly looking for the danger or the negative and the, oh, I have to walk on eggshells thing to avoid getting hurt. Well, that's very, that last part obviously can be very important and, and keeps you safe in certain narcissistic relationships. You're rewiring your neural pathways to look for the bad. And if you're constantly looking for the bad and for the danger, we're cultivating those experiences. We're putting it into the amygdala. We're training our amygdala that life is bad and scary and dangerous. And our beliefs that get formed as a result of that is, you know, I'm not safe. I am in danger. Um, I'm a bad person. It's all my fault. I should have known better. These sorts of things. And if those are the beliefs that are most alive in you, obviously your core positive beliefs are going to suffer. So if you can engage with something like narrative therapy at the end of your day, when you when you have this whole story about what a horrible, awful day it was, and you can sort of rewrite it and you come up with this whole new version that includes the exceptions, the expectations we might have had, the assumptions we might have made, you'll get this different story about, well, I woke up late and I, I should not have done that. And this is why I woke up late. And, you know, my boss actually has been more than fair to me and he's given me ample opportunity to do well. And my partner, despite coming home in a bad mood, did support me by giving me a foot massage at the end of the night and listening to my day. And I felt a lot of love and support in that moment. And I felt more connected to my partner and this job that the boss's cousin got really is a terrible job. And while it does pay more, I'd have to work, you know, till 10 p.m. every night and I wouldn't be able to come home to my partner, which is really important to me. So I'm actually quite glad I didn't get this promotion because it really wouldn't have worked for my life, right? So you've totally rewritten this narrative, including all this extra data that we sort of conveniently left out of the first version. And when you do that, then again, you come back to power and control and choice. You get to choose what your truth is. You get to choose what your narrative is. And that's what informs your positive core beliefs. Mm. Thank you so much. Uh, one final question. Do you have any kind of note uh, when people who are currently in narcissistic, uh, narcissistically abusive relationships so that they don't accidentally let's say use narrative therapy or this approach kind of just to endure the abuse and somehow you know kind of keep the hope up or keep the like oh yeah, yeah it's, I just need to change my thinking about this and it's going to mm -hmm. be better any way that you can actually use this approach and tip and strategy that you just shared in a way that empowers you and not doesn't put you in a position where you just endure the abusive behavior or the abusive person yeah. in your life yeah, and thank you for bringing that up. I really should have clarified that before I, I gave this fifth um, option. I would not use this to justify or minimize or validate any abuse that you're experiencing, any bad behavior on the part of the narcissist. This narrative isn't about accepting their behavior. This narrative is to be used for amplifying your experiences, your beliefs about yourself, your feeling states, right? So if you're in a narcissistic abusive relationship and you want to go to bed at night and you're going through the litany of all the bad, horrible, awful things that they said or did, this isn't a tool to make those things okay. 
this is a tool to figure out where your power is, where your control is, where your choice is, and to validate all the good things that you did or experienced that day. You know, where is your love and support? What is good about you? What are some of the brighter things that happened that day? If we can focus more on those brighter things, that is going to increase your, your core beliefs and your positive moon state and hopefully get you into a, a place where you can take a more active role in maybe getting out of the narcissistic abusive relationship or at least being able to be less affected by it because you've got that solid foundation. You know your truth. You're focusing on what is positive about you instead of believing that negative input that they may be giving you about who you are. I hope you enjoyed that episode and maybe you are going to listen to it a couple more times if you are planning on using Carrie Ann's advice, which I hope you do. Before I let you go, I would like to invite you to join our free community. My team and I send out free courses, exercises and workshops every week. In fact, we already have a course about developing positive core beliefs with insights from Veronica Vidi. Also, we host live therapist-led Q&A sessions every month that are 100% free. To join, please click the link in the podcast notes or visit unfiltered.net slash community. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'll catch you in the next one.